Chapter 19 Feet and the Famous So many feet, hundreds of them, thousands of them, passing through my hands, talking to me. Long feet and short feet, slim feet and broad feet, ruined feet, damaged feet, and occasionally, like the feet of the Duchess of Windsor and Susan Hayward, perfect feet. So many feet. The high-arched, narrow feet of the Spanish and Mexicans, the narrow heels of the South Africans, the feet of the shoe-conscious American women, the Australian feet to which nature has been generous in length, though they too are narrow. The British foot is difficult to talk about because it has been so badly abused. Children in England are well shod up to the age of eight or ten years. The shoes are soft, the measurements good, the mothers are conscious of their children's feet if they're not always conscious of their own. The moment the child's toe starts to push through the material, they buy new shoes. After the age of 10, British feet begin to get bad because of the meager range of sizes and fittings. I remember one typical incident only a year or two ago in a large store in a provincial English city. I was sitting in the salon waiting for the buyer, and idly I watched a woman buying shoes. She was a well-dressed, apparently prosperous woman, but she could find only two pairs of shoes that came near to a fit. One pair pinched at the toes, so the salesgirl advised her to take the others. Oh, they were dreadful. As she walked, they gaped at the sides like a twisted mouth. She should never have bought them, but she did. This sort of fitting has meant that the older generation of British women have poor feet. Fortunately, the younger generation is at least half as foot-conscious as her American sister. She is insisting on fractional fittings, and on my last visit to England late in 1955, members of shoe organizations told me that they are finding it essential to supply them. In a few years, we shall be able to talk about the character of British feet because they will have been fitted properly. What do I mean when I say that feet talk to me? They communicate the character of the person. Let a nervous woman place her foot, perfectly relaxed, into my hand, and I know at once that she's nervous because a current powerful as a small electric shock, passes through her feet to my palm. I feel the reaction as clearly as I feel the sun when it is warm and the wind when it blows cold. The degree of nervousness, I can tell you, by the degree of shock. The more powerful it is, the more nervy is the person. When there is no shock, I can tell you at once that the person is without temper, without nerves. I do not mean, therefore, that she is without sensitivity or a capacity for self-criticism, or indeed that she is not, in her own way, highly strong, but she is not, shall I say, jittery. These impressions, received through the foot, enabled me to supplement my visual impressions of how I must deal with my customers. Sometimes I find them more reliable than my eyesight and my hearing. The feet do not lie. Thus, I know, for instance, that um, such and such a woman 
is the type who will never believe that a pair of shoes will fit her. She has been to shoemaker after shoemaker, and of all of the shoes, she has said, they are no good, my feet are impossible to fit. This woman I must dominate. I must make shoes that fit her perfectly. And then, knowing that she will still find them troublesome because the trouble is in her mind, I must impress upon her. These shoes are perfect. Never will you have any trouble with them. Never. You can walk without anxiety for the rest of your life in shoes like these. She goes away happy and contented. And the next time she comes to me and offers me her feet, I find that her disposition has changed. I no longer receive such a sharp shock. Her nerves have been so greatly calmed by my shoes that her menfolk, husband lovers, find it difficult to believe that the woman they love is the same person. The shape of the foot talks to me also. I can tell you this, Signora, if you have an extremely high arched foot, you are artistic. You can be artistic without possessing a high arched foot, but you cannot be high arched and not be artistic. The higher the arch, the more pronounced the ability. Only four or five in every hundred possess arches like these, and from their ranks come the great dancers. Pavlova, Alicia Markova, Colette Marchand, and Catherine Dunham, to name only four from widely different times and styles. And those who would have been great dancers if they had chosen, Betty Davis, Anna Magnani, Clara Bow, and among the men, Mussolini. Many years ago in Hollywood, an unknown girl walked into my salon. As I looked at her foot, I said, are you an artist? She shook her head. She was a secretary, she told me, and had no pretensions to film acting or stage acting or any other form of art. Nevertheless, I told her, you are an artist, and one day you will find the art that will satisfy you, and you will become famous. A few years later, Anita Luz wrote, Gentlemen prefer blondes. If you aspire to be a toe dancer, look at your arch. If it is high, you may succeed. If it is normal or low, never. Do not, however, give up dancing lessons. They strengthen the foot and help to stave off the worst effects of ill-fitting shoes. Also, if you are a toe dancer, you will never suffer from flat feet. Only this year a Canadian woman came to me whose feet were bad. Her foot was high-arched, and the collapse of the arch had driven the metatarsal joint of her big toe under the foot. It was so painful that she could not put her foot to the ground without agony. She was a woman of 45, and as I looked at her foot, I asked her, are you a toe dancer, or have you ever been one? I knew she had not, because her feet lacked the strength dancing would have given to them. But I wanted to hear her reply. No, I've never even thought about it. 
You have the feet of a toe dancer, I said. Me? Toe dance with feet like mine? She said incredulously. Why? I have come all the way from Vancouver because I have heard that you can help my feet. And so I can, I said. And despite your bad feet, you could be a toe dancer. Why don't you try it? Try standing on your toes now. She looked at me as if she thought I was mad, and then made the attempt. Up she went, straight on her toes, and stood, balancing there, bewildered, while her husband looked from her to me as if there were black magic about. The size of your feet, too, tells me about your character. I have divided the women who have come to me into three categories, the Cinderella, the Venus, and the aristocrat. The Cinderella takes a shoe smaller than size six. The Venus takes size six. The aristocrat a seven or larger. The Cinderella, I have observed, is essentially a feminine person, a lover of jewels and furs, who must be in love to be truly happy. Venus is usually of great beauty, glamour and sophistication, yet, under her glittering exterior, she's often essentially a homebody loving the simple things of life. Because these two characteristics are mutually contradictory, the Venus is often misunderstood. People accuse her of too much luxury loving and frivolity. The aristocrats are sensitive, even moody, but possess a great depth of understanding. There are, of course, many minor variations in these broad categories, but it may amuse you to consider how the many different types of people who have matching feet could be brought within the same broad classification, and it may also interest you to compare your feet with the feet of the famous. The sizes I shall quote here, as elsewhere in this book, are all American fittings, the most accurate in the world. If you are unfamiliar with the system, you should, in Britain, take two sizes off. Thus, a size six in America, a size four in Britain. The width fittings indicates narrowness. A is the narrowest with four A's even more narrow. The B is broader, and so on down the alphabet. The smallest foot of all the many thousands which pass through my hands, whether of royalty or commoner, whether rich or poor, belong to Miss Sheila Haftel, a South African girl now living in London. If you could give them a size, it would be 1B. Yet, they are beautiful. Their bone formation is exquisite, and anatomically, they are fascinating. Among the famous people, the smallest I have fitted is Anita Luce, who takes 2B. Miss Tanguette, the vivacious legend of France, took 2.5C. Mary Pickford is a 3B. Bertina Burkett, Harold Lloyd's leading lady, who took a 3.5B, the same size as Gloria Swanson was so envious of the smallness and loveliness of Mary's feet 
that she insisted on cramming her own beautiful and dainty foot into a 3B sandal. Claire Bloom, serene and charming, takes a 3.5C. Jean Harlow, Dolores Del Rio, and Anne Todd are, or were, almost triplets. Dolores takes a 4C, Jean and Anne 4B. In the gradually larger sizes, the more normal foot, there is greater duplication. Betty Davis, Jennifer Jones, Carmen Miranda, and Maria Felix, the Mexican actress, share or shared size 4.5B. Agnes DeMille and Anna May Wong share 4.5C. The Queen of Greece, the Duchess of Windsor, Valentina Cortese, Gina Lollobrigida, Marlene Dietrich, Eva Peron, Claretta Petacci, the Maharani of Coach Behar, Joan Crawford and Paulette Godard all take or took 5B, with Lillian Gish a shade narrower at 5A. Margaret Lockwood is neat and slim with a 5.5 double A. Princess Margaret and Vivian Lee share one fitting broader at 5.5A. Alicia Markova, Eva Gardner, Jean Turney, Maura Shearer, and the ex-queen of Yugoslavia share size 5.5B. So much for the Cinderella's. The Venuses include Margaret de Mille, Delia Rigel of the New York Metropolitan Opera, Hedy Lamar, and Rita Hayworth, who share size 6A. The ex-queen of Yugoslavia's daughters, Madame Lupescu, who married ex-kin Carol of Romania just before he died, Susan Hayward, and Mrs. Claire Booth Luce, the American ambassador to Italy and wife of Mr. Henry Luce, publisher of Time, Life, and Fortune, are slightly slimmer at 6AA. Queen Sarai of Persia, May West, Pavlova, and Eva Brown, who married Hitler just before they committed suicide in the bunker under the Chancellery in Berlin, take or took size 6B. Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, takes 6C. At one half size larger are Esther Ralston, ex-Queen Nariman of Egypt, Claudette Colbert, and Virginia Cheryl, once Charlie Chaplin's wife, and star of many of his earlier films, Six and a Half A. With Paula Negri and Alida Valli, Six and a Half Double A, and Queen Elizabeth II, Six and a Half B. Among the aristocrats are, or were, Eleonora Duse, the wonderful Italian actress, and Sophia Loren, 7A. Greta Garbo and Catherine Hepburn, 7AA, Norma Shearer, 7AAA, Anne Baxter, 7B, Audrey Hepburn, 7.5AAA, Colette Marchand, the French ballerina, 7.5B, Ingrid Bergman, 8AA, the ex-queen Maria José of Italy, 8.5AA, the ex-queen of Romania, 9AA, and Lauren Bacall and the Duchess of Aosta, 9AAA. What are these famous people like, and what styles do they prefer? The Duchess of Windsor, small and charming, 
who is one of the best-dressed women in the world because she has an inborn taste in clothes, will never wear a novelty shoe. It will be out of place on her foot. And so she always chooses a classic line in two tones for spring and summer and plain for autumn and winter. Gloria Swanson, too, likes her classical line. Both these ladies, as well as Queen Soraya, always buy a series of shoes in white satin and dyed them to match their new gowns. Mrs. Claire Booth Luce is always a step ahead of fashion, and her taste is of such exquisite refinement that, though my shoes are renowned as lightweights, she would still wish them to fly to her feet. Susan Hayward, whose slim feet are among the few perfect feet I have ever shod, loves short, round-toed shoes. Anne Baxter chooses more fancy, well-decorated styles, and Lauren Bacall has a passion for gay mules with Turkish toes. Beautiful Alicia Markova loves my shoes and has amassed a huge collection. She must travel with two trunks full only of shoes. Her feet are strong and lovely and startlingly like those of Pavlova and Agnes de Mille. Like Pavlova, Markova goes straight up on her toes, as sheer as the campanile, but unlike Pavlova, who will never wear a heel higher than medium, Markova loves high heels. Normally I restrict the height of my heels to the line of the arch, with a maximum for comfort and fashion of three inches, but I believe it would be almost impossible to make a heel too tall for Markova. Her feet are so strong that she could walk on her toes almost indefinitely. Valentina Cortese is another woman who has a passionate love for beautiful shoes. She insists that every time I make a new line, I must include shoes for her. Never once has she complained that her wardrobe of footwear is too large. On the contrary, the only times when she's ever cross with me are when, passing my Rome salon window, she sees shoes I've not sent her and demands to know why I left them out. Claretta Petacci loved beautiful shoes more than any other item of dress. She possessed more pairs of shoes than gloves or stockings, and when she was killed with Mussolini, there were between 40 and 50 pairs of her shoes still at Palazzo Ferroni, undelivered and unpaid for. She was a cute, adorable creature with no evil in her. I'm sure that she knew no more than the sun and the moon what was happening in the politics her lover was controlling. I'm also convinced that she loved him. I do not know how much he loved her, but she was crazily in love with Mussolini. Eva Brown would wear nothing but Ferragamo shoes, of all sorts and styles. She had good, normal feet, and anything would fit her. She first came to my salon before the war, always accompanied by a collection of goose-stepping Nazi guards who stumped about the room, hiling Hitler at every opportunity. I knew nothing of her intimate life at this time. To me, she was only a German actress and another customer. 
It was not until years later that I fully understood the true connection between the demands from the German high command that I make her shoes and her appearance in my salon. Rita Hayworth loves her feet and has always been faithful to my shoes, especially during those periods when she has been expecting her babies. In order not to damage her feet, she chooses at these times nothing but wedges, especially made for her. Like the Duchess of Windsor and Gloria Swanson, Claudette Colbert also chooses classical shoes, particularly those which have a meaning in fashion. New materials and new styles appeal to her. She never wears a two-toned shoe, always plain. I've known her for many years, and to me she seemed to have the secret of perpetual youth. I am sure that if ever there are signs that she's growing old, her feet will never age. Queen Elena of Italy used to send for me, and I would travel up to Rome to see her at the palace. On one visit, she questioned me about my life, and when I had told the scraps of it, she became intensely interested. After that, her request for my attendance at the palace became more frequent, and her questions about my career more searching, until I sometimes wondered whether she wanted me at the palace to make her new shoes or to tell her another installment of my life story. One evening, she was questioning me, when a majordomo, a butler, entered to announce that dinner was served. I moved to leave, but the queen would not hear of it, and continued her cross-examination. A little later, dinner was again announced, and once again she ignored it. Finally, impatient at being kept waiting for his meal, came into the queen's apartment. My dear, he said, dinner is served and is waiting for you. The dinner can wait, Queen Elena said. I'm listening to a most fascinating story. Just listen to this. And for half an hour, she retold episode from my life story while the king listened and the dinner waited. Princess Maria José wore the worst shoes I have ever made. During uh, the war, she was the first lady of the Italian Red Cross, and around her, as helpers, she gathered most of the nobility and gentry of Italy. The princess has good feet, but they are exceptionally long and narrow, and so are difficult to fit. When her shoes wore out, she appealed to me to make new ones, not only for her, but also for all the Red Cross ladies. Their long hours of standing were testing their feet severely. I pointed out that I could little except repair the shoes they already own and do the best I could with the ersatz materials at my command and within the limitations of the legal standards of design. Eventually, I made wedges for them all, but the materials were ungodly, canvas, rejuvenated rubber, and pressed fiber. Marlene Dietrich, surely the possessor of the most beautiful legs, ankles, and feet in the world, has one virtue as a customer which especially appeals to me as a designer. When I have created a new style, it is for me at once already old. I cannot even be bothered to look at it again unless I have a special reason. There is always something more beautiful, more perfect, still to be created. Marlene asks for the most up-to-date in fashion styles, wears the shoes once or twice, 
enjoys their beauty to the full, and then casts them aside. She, too, looks for the beauty and perfection of the future. Audrey Hepburn's long, slim foot is in perfect proportion to her height. She's a true artist and a true aristocrat. I know this without having seen her films. My wife rushes off with the girls the moment the films arrive in Florence without waiting for me to join her. Audrey is always natural and completely unaffected, whether she's acting or buying shoes or handbags. She can talk intelligently and knowledgeably on philosophy, art, astronomy, and the theater, and in my opinion, is in the same Scandinavian-British aristocratic tradition which began with Greta Garbo and continued with Ingrid Bergman, who, incidentally, prefers low-heeled shoes and is a perpetual delight to look at, to talk to, and to remember. I cannot pass Greta Garbo with only a sidelong glance. She is incomparable, the greatest actress the screen has ever seen. She ranks in my estimation with Cecil B. DeMille as a director and Charlie Chaplin as a clown. Greta Garbo arrived in Hollywood not long before I left it for Florence, but I made her first shoes in the film city. Later she bought my shoes as long as the Hollywood boot shop remained in my ownership and afterwards from whenever she could obtain them, including Saks Fifth Avenue in New York. Then one day, in August 1949, I saw her again. She walked into my salon in Florence, looking not a day older than when I first met her, wearing a pair of worn, rope-soled sandals. I have no shoes, she said. I want to walk. In five sessions, I created for her a series of low-heeled, close-toes styles, which included Zita, a black afternoon suede pump with a grated vamp, Greta, also swayed with seamless uppers, a discreet buckle and a soft dimple toe, and an ankle-strap sandal in wine-red calf that she particularly adored. As she paced the floor of the salon in the first pair, she smiled at me, as she smiled in Ninochka, her film. And her exclamations of pleasure were more than I had expected. Altogether, she ordered... Seventy pairs, mostly differing only in color. As a woman, Greta Garbo is charming, affable, intelligent, and knows exactly what she wants. In fact, our only difference of opinion occur when I wanted to give her a heel, following up her arch in my own style. And she refused. She's the only person who has ever opposed my ideas. She has beautiful feet, and I imagine that her preference for low-heeled shoes reflects an intense desire to preserve her feet against any possible damage. In my shoes, she does not need to worry. I did manage to give her a little heel, not as much as I would have liked, but more than she wanted. And later, when I saw moving pictures of her, They convinced me that I was right. She walks beautifully on a small hill, and it shows off her ankles to perfection. Her temperament is truly aristocratic. I've never seen her in a bad temper and never expect to. I can tell from the reaction in her feet. 
There is none at all the sure sign of an equable, assured personality. For instance, as she left the salon at the conclusion of her visit, crowds surged forwards around a car and cameramen rushed to take pictures. I was annoyed at the intrusion, but not Miss Garbo. She is a princess at heart. She merely bent her head to indicate that she did not desire to be photographed and climbed into the car. As an artist, she is consummate. She has been endowed by nature with a degree of acting quality which others do not possess. And she worked without cessation to transform it into a medium which satisfied her own high standards. When she's acting, she possesses the film through and through. The film is her, her life, her personality. I know little about her preparation for the camera, but I believe that whereas others spend days or perhaps weeks on it, she spends all her free time for months beforehand. Why has she apparently abandoned a screen? I do not know. It is certainly not for lack of offers. When she was in Italy, I was approached by an Italian film company which authorized me to offer her £150,000 for one film, plus all the rights a star of a magnitude can command. Later, through the same source, I learned that in Paris she had turned down a similar offer which went up to £200,000 for one picture. If I have to essay an opinion on her long screen absence, it is this. Whatever Greta Garbo accepts to do, she must do it with all her might. She's incapable of walking before the cameras for a fabulous sum and giving only a part of herself. I read once that she sits through her pictures again and again, and her passionate desire for perfection in her art causes her physical anguish at every mistake she can detect. Such agony that it's easier not to endure it at all again. It may be right. It fits into the character of Greta Garbo as I have seen her. I know this too. If ever again she consents to appear on the screen, she will draw the greatest audiences the cinema has ever known, and she will draw them irrespective of the picture. She will draw them by the power and strength of her own personality. <laughs>